Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bob Garfield, uh, co-host co co and definitely subordinate member of the team at On The Media. <laughs> at On The Media, due to circumstances beyond our control, our portfolio over the years has gradually expanded a bit. We used to cover, what do you call it, media. Uh, but now, our beat seems to be at the risk of sounding grandiose, truth, justice, and the American way. Plus, pretty much every week, we, uh, we find something we hate on cable, so-called news. <laughs> but this is a super media-e panel, so here I am to run it. Uh, I'm joined by Maria Inahosa of Latino USA. Sam Sanders of NPR. And Zoe Chase of a little boutique outfit called This American Life. You know, I'm thrilled to have them up here on the dais with me. Uh, and, you know, after some of last night's conversation, especially delighted uh, for once to bask in the halo of these diversity optics. I mean, we even got a millennial on stage. It's so unbelievable. Our show happens to be a little thin, hostile diversity-wise, although I am proud to say that our team does include a broad representation of gender among old white crypto Jews. Now, I don't know what y'all were doing earlier this week, but evidently there was an, an election of some sort, the results of which took some people by surprise. Not necessarily because, and I, I will try to be careful with my words here, not because a sleazy, hateful, lying, predator, ignoramus will be president of the United States, but because the media share the blame for maybe five reasons. One, because we made a joke of this guy instead of recognizing the menace in him. Two, we gave him a priceless platform to spew demagoguery. Number three, we failed to identify the very real fears and the very real obstacles to millions and millions of Americans who find themselves in an economy beset by technological dislocation and globalism. Number four, called yet another horse race instead of, in my view, preparing the world for an oncoming killer storm. And five, five, maybe more, most importantly of all, just failed to persuasively explain shit to folks. Now, if you look at your programs, you'll see that this panel is meant to highlight various kinds of storytelling during the course of the campaign. But to quote Aristotle, I think it was Aristotle, who so eloquently put this so many years ago, fuck that shit. <laughs> we have bigger fish to fry right now. So I've commandeered this panel to change the discussion to two fundamental questions. One, what, if anything, 
did we as audio producers and reporters, as chroniclers and storytellers, as artisans of narrative do wrong? And what in the world should we do now? Maria, uh, I want to start with you. If the question is, what in the world should we do now? What in the world should we do now? <laughs> right, because I know. <laughs> and that's why you're here. See, this is what we actually have to realize, is we have to, we have to be able to ask that question, which is that nobody knows. Nobody knows what to do now. And frankly, the role of, of one of the big questions that, that the media, the mainstream, whatever, needs to ask itself is what are they going to do? I mean, this dude, I'm sorry, this man went on Twitter and said that the protesters were being paid by the media. So he is taking his first shot out the door is to attack journalists and the media. So the question is, what is the media going to do in response? Which is the question that they, you know, they should have been asking themselves way back when. Um, so the short answer is, we don't know, right? I mean, we know at, at Latino USA, at In the Thick, um, at America by the Numbers, we are, are thinking a lot about what is our role and what is our response. So we are actively engaged in that conversation. Um, but we, we also don't know. Um, I also just want to take a moment because um, Cecilia Weissman was my best friend. So thank you for Cecilia Weissman. And the three of you who are fellows, please come see me. Anyway, so yeah, on an emotional, and I didn't even expect that here. Um, I'll just say this finally. It's really hard for us as journalists. So, I am five things that the president-elect does not like. I'm Mexican, I'm an immigrant, I'm a woman, I'm a journalist, I'm flat-chested. <laughs> I'm gonna bring it back, it's cool. So what, how do I as an American journalist approach this? And when we went on the air, when we pointed out, all of us um, at Futuro Media, and we said, this, in the way we are hearing this, this is dangerous speech, um, we were set aside. And the question now is, will we be set aside now? Right? It's a very real question for us. One of the potential answers to what should we do now is nothing different. We're, we're journalists, we're storytellers, we should journalize and tell stories. Uh, which might be the right answer, it might be part of the right answer, it might be entirely the wrong answer. Sam, I, you, you might be the, like the grown-up in the room. <laughs> uh, is, is the answer that we should just make sure we don't take sides? I think, I don't think that, that's not the question I ask in my work, right? And on the podcast and the stories that I tell. The question for me is, 
what can I make sense of for my audience today? So we get letters all the time from podcast listeners who are Republicans and Democrats and evangelicals and atheists. I had one guy tweet me months ago and say, I'm a Trump supporter who also supports Black Lives Matter. And thanks for giving me this space so I feel like I can listen and not be critiqued, right? So it's not about what side am I on, it's about finding the truth that is just the truth for all the sides to accept, right? And creating an environment where they all feel like they can come and listen to it. And that's the challenge, right? Like, that's the challenge. So we end up with newsrooms and places where for years or for decades, people have seen you as partisan, people have seen you as this or that, and then when you try to do the work that speaks to the whole country, it's hard because they don't think that you're fair. And so our mission from day one in the politics podcast was to say, every candidate deserves our respect, every voter deserves our respect, and I have to assume that every type of voter is listening to me. That's one. And then I also want to kind of answer your first question because I, I, I like that question. I think like, you know, what do we do now? Um, I think what we can't do is journal. I'm sorry, excuse me. I asked you to respond to the second question. I said nothing about the first question. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. But I mean, I think that like there's this whole like kind of like what do we do now situation that's happening with journalists who are freaking the hell out. You do the work. You reflect. You see what you did wrong. But you do the work. And if all of the fears that people are speaking of now that this thing happens are true, it's even more reason to do the goddamn work. And so what I hate to see from this industry and what I've seen in the last few days is people cowering. Um, one, you gotta realize, for those that are distressed by the results of this election, there are people that live in the margins of intersectionality that feel this fear every day. There are people in this country who think that their government's out to get them every day, who think that their leaders hate them every day. They live in that fear and they go to fucking work every day. <laughs> like, we have to do that too. So that's what I've been telling myself. If anything, the work is more vital. Of course, it's time for self-reflection, but do the work. I have a question before I get to you, Zoe, or you know, maybe never at all, really, is one of the possibilities, but do the work. Pay attention to making sure that we, in one way or another, convey truth. These are things that came up. Um, what is the work in a world, in a world where what's often been called a, a post-fact society, where some things are objectively facts and some things aren't, but people cast their ballots and live their lives based on how they feel, not what they know, but how they feel irrespective of facts, including science, economic data, what have you. How can we do the job of reporting truth without, without being dismissed as, as polemicists? You talk to people about how they feel. I mean, that's like, data will not save you. It won't, right? Like, that's, that's been proven by this election. And voters are confusing people. We all are confusing people. And so what 
I've done and what well, other... Nobody believes in any single poll ever yeah, in history. Yeah, but you know what? I think that, like, we did really well, and we didn't do everything well at NPR this year, but, like, we were out in the country talking to the voters that voted for Donald Trump and voted for Hillary Clinton. And you don't understand their truth until you talk to them about it. And, and, and like, it is, a, it is a conversation that has to ha happen at the same time separately in, in, in conjunction with facts. Like, I can't talk to a person about facts or about data until they've opened up to me. And I can't tell them that they're wrong or that they're right until they trust me. And so, so much of what we tried to do over the course of the year is go to this rally and that rally and talk to that candidate and this person and that person and like get that at least little bit of a spark of a relationship first and then you can do that. And so what a lot of people were doing with this election were sitting in their newsrooms in DC or New York with their charts and their data and tweeting out how everybody else was wrong and that did nothing. But like, you can't, you can't give anybody any information or any data or any facts or any science if they don't wanna like accept you. And part of that is just like being a real ass person and like talking to these, talking to people. And, and that requires you getting out of your newsroom, getting out of your bubble, but it is worthwhile. And I will, and I will say, I've, I have not, I've, every single time that I go to a campaign event for all these different candidates, for the vast majority of the time, talking to the people there, they want to have a, they want to have a conversation. They want to, they do. Yeah, I just think like it's a longer conversation maybe than people thought it was gonna be. Like, yeah. this is the country. Like it was a very close election, okay? Like the, the thing that's upsetting to me is the surprise. You know, and I think it was surprising that, uh, you know, like it was confusing because a lot of people don't think that like probability, like there's a 25% probability that Trump is gonna be president according to 538 means that he's not gonna be, like that's not math. And so I think a lot of people were surprised in the media because like I certainly outsourced my kind of like prediction number gathering to people like 538 who I respect tremendously and, and love their show and I'm grateful for it because that's like not my job to do the, the data gathering. But like there's a lot of, it's a divided country with a lot of racism in it, and, and that certainly is not surprising to me, although it's very upsetting and should continue to be. But I also think, like, forget, like, radio for a second. Like, if you think about David Farenthold from the Washington Post, who is such an extraordinary journalist, and I, I really do think that, like, we need to kind of look around when we talk about the media with this election at the sort of new things people were trying to do as they moved into uncharted territory. We have a candidate, Donald Trump, who's not releasing his tax returns. We have no way to tell if he's doing any charitable giving or not. David Farenthold picks up a notebook and a pen and starts calling every charity in the United States of America and asking them if they've ever gotten money from Donald Trump. And he just writes down, never, never, never. And then he posts his notebook and then he starts like hearing, you know, about the portrait. Like, I'm not going to tell you guys who, who are on the internet already what Farenthold did, but I was upset <laughs> after the election. Um, I don't know. There was like a feeling I was getting from journalists that like, oh, David Farenthold should win the Pulitzer for stopping Donald Trump. And then it's like, well, he didn't. So I guess that wasn't helpful. What? He's the president. 
Like, that's really helpful. We have all this work that, data, that David Farenthold has done, and that's incredibly important. And so I feel like the, the kind of tricky chops that a lot of journalists had to employ this election when Trump wasn't giving them any interviews, um, when he wasn't releasing any information, when he was lying in response to questions and, and just like covering up stuff that he had done before and denying it and there was sort of no way to check things. Like it was a very hard journalistic environment to operate in I think for many people. And to discount the, the creativity of a lot of the people like David Farenthold, I think it is like a big mistake. And I think that if people lose their curiosity about what the hell is going on here, because this election was a surprise because we trusted the 75% prediction of 538, which allowed for a 25%, like I think that's a real problem. You know, I assume that everybody's, once they kind of get through their feelings, is gonna get more curious. That's what I'm assuming. Yeah, that's probably worth knowing for, for anybody in the room who ever looks at data and polling. Um, not only was 538 not wrong, 538 by definition could not have been wrong. They gave the odds. The long shot sort of came in. It's, if it's like a, literally like a weather report. If uh, there's a 99% chance of snow and the, the skies are clear, the weather forecast was right. We just happened to hit the 1%. So that great misunderstanding uh, I may have informed some, um, some careless assumptions. But, you know, we've heard so often in the last four days, as the media beats its breast about what we did wrong, that we didn't go out to the hustings and, and talk to real people about their real lives and their real concerns. Well, we are in a room where that's what you people do like more or less every day. You find real voices. And these guys are the real verse, real voice finding, you know, pantheon. And I, I, I just don't think it's enough because real voices, while they're, they make for drama, like I, I watch the State of the Union, I, I think it's really cool when that person stands up next to the First Lady because they've done something heroic and she's supposed to stand there as a sort of metaphor for something larger. But that also, as we know, can be abused because anecdotes can be so powerful because they lead people to think that it, they represent something larger than they are. How do we as voice seekers and put, put on the errors, make sure that we're not distorting reality or just bean counting by putting certain voices out. Are, are we being condescending? Are we being dishonest? How, what do we have to do in selecting which voices to find and put on our, in our stories? So I want to tell you that <clears throat> at Futuro Media Group, there are two words that we don't use. We don't use the word illegal to define a human being, and we don't use the word minority. Um, so we're approaching, well, I kind of expected a round of applause for that, but okay. <laughs> no, actually, this is very interesting. It's actually very interesting. You guys are like, well, mm. for us, this is core, right? We are an organization that is committed to diversity and understanding that diversity in a very deep way. So the fact that you guys are like, oh, that's cool, no, it's for real for us. So um, 
the way that we want to approach the conversation is actually, yes, broadening it up. I mean, we, that, that person who I am seeing schooling about the term illegals is not a noun. So Steve Cortez is on Latino USA this week on our show today that dropped yesterday. He's a fan of the show. Um, so we have Latino Trump supporters on our air, as we did throughout the conversation. But th there's a broader picture that I think we have to, all of us, think about, right? Which is that if you, if you at our core, lack diversity in our newsrooms, let's see, do you think it's a, do you think that we lack diversity in our newsrooms? If you do, raise your hand. Oh. Wow, that's, that's a lot of you. Now, if we lack that diversity in our newsrooms, and the story is that America is dramatically changing demographically, but we're not in those newsrooms to be part of that story, right? To be helping to tell that story, because I am part of that demographic change, my kids are part of that demographic change, my husband is. If we're not in the newsrooms, then how has that story been told? not a year ago or two years ago, but actually for the last 30-something years, right? Which is basically, oh, shit, the browning of America. What? Mary, I'm going to interrupt you here because I... I, I Hold I, on, I, but wait, wait a second. Let me just get to the thought. So if there is an analysis that, that diversity is bringing a problem as opposed to, wow, is there opportunity here? What does this mean for our country? The data says that it's happening then if we approach that story from the get-go, and we bring that diversity into our newsrooms, how would then the story have been told differently? That's what I'm asking. And if it had been told differently, then would we have gotten here? I don't know, but we do know, and you know, that there is a problem with a lack of diversity in our newsrooms. All right, but is the, is the problem in this particular circumstance, the problem that, that we don't have enough Latinos or African Americans or Native Americans, or that we don't have enough working class people Agreed. from rural America? Absolutely. And I, if you know my work, thing. and if you know my work, I have been saying, because actually, when I first worked at NPR as the first Latina in the editorial offices of NPR, and I was like, yo, what? Wait a second. You need some class diversity up in here, yo, what is this? I have been saying that from the beginning, absolutely, and also absolutely religious experience background. So again, you're right, we have to put the microscope, and it isn't simply like, oh, let's, oh, let's put another you know, Latino there, it's gonna be, no, 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 it's much deeper than that, but I'm absolutely with you. It is about understanding that from multiple perspectives. I want to follow up on that, on kind of the voices that we missed. Um, I think a voice that the entire media missed this cycle, myself included, my newsroom included, were unenthusiastic Democrats. Oh, yeah. I think that I heard and read and did my fair share of profiles of Trump supporters throughout the country, as did every other newsroom worth their salt, but we did not understand the level of unenthusiasm that existed among traditionally democratic voting blocks. I did a story that ran yesterday morning on Bernie Sanders supporters basically saying, told you so. And I talked to a handful of them who basically were like, 
oh yeah, as soon as she got the nomination, I was out. I felt like she cheated. I felt like it was unfair. Bernie's my dog. Bye-bye, right? And the conventional wisdom was that all of these people would come around and that she would pull Obama-like margins with these communities because that's what they do. No, nope. that's what we missed. We knew what Trump voters looked and sounded and felt like. We failed to understand that the Obama coalition was a magical, mythical, one-time thing. And I think part of it is that a lot of the folks that the media expected to remain part of the Obama-Clinton coalition are the folks that live in your cities and go to the same bars you go to and, and do some of the same things that you do. So you just expected what their behavior was going to be. And so the voices that we missed were honestly like right in front of our noses. Well, so we let's, did, let's we, discuss we did that, that problem just, of... Yes, no, I mean, but not everybody. We did it, yeah. Not everybody. I, I agree with you. Let's discuss the issue of elitism and uh, coastalism, the echo chamber, and by the way, the liberal media. Now, there's, I don't know, five or six, seven hundred people in the room right now. Um, if, you, if you regard yourself as politically liberal or progressive, get out of your chair and stand up, please. <laughs> Please. You don't, you don't have to do that. Why are you doing that? Wow. You don't really? have to do that. Whoa, this is like interesting. Um, it's not a game I'm playing. Wow. Okay, so they're right. <laughs> and that's something else we have to think about, is it not? Because it, however we decide to tell a story, However we decide, partly because we are indeed coming from an, not necessarily an ideology or a doctrine as a group, but certainly from a certain worldview, a certain way of approaching the world around us, uh, you know, with science and data and facts and shit, uh, we are mistrusted. We are mistrusted because we are perceived as a monolith. And we're also perceived as kind of an antichrist. And if they, we weren't naturally, organically perceived as that, there has been a 30 or 40 year propaganda campaign to tell the world that that's what we are. And so when we do what we do, in all sobriety and all nobility, we are already not being heard by approximately 50% of the potential audience. So my question is, we've heard so much in the last few days about being inclusive in who we talk to, the voices we have, don't we kind of have to figure out not to perfunctorily fill our, our, our stories with a cast of characters, you know, in a kind of tokenism, but don't we have to figure out how to tell stories in a way that will be heard by the half of the world who aren't listening now, or if they are listening, are listening dismissively? That's a hiring issue. We don't have the right people in the office. And I think that's a big problem. You know, like a lot of people in these offices went to the same college. Like that, I mean, it's not like, oh, how do I magically find, I, I don't know, like I think that has a lot to do with who's in the office. I think we have a huge, huge hiring problem in public media. And I'm very worried about it. So, and I don't want to turn into 
Why like, do you worry about it? So what does it mean? Like when you say, what is the motivation for the worry that you have about that? Oh, like I just, I mean, I don't, it's hard to even even begin. Like I think that when, you know, you're in a, in a room that can devolve into a, like a quick group think, you know, when like everybody walks into the room the day after the election and their heads are like this and everybody knows why. Like I see that as a problem, you know, for a news gathering organization that's supposed to be telling stories as, as and, and shedding like a great deal of insight, which I think is our job is to seek out insight and, and then share it in a way that as many people as possible will, will benefit from it. You know, you, you need people with a diverse background in every sense in order to get the greatest amount of insight, not to do some kind of weird math about it, but I just, I, you know, it's disheartening. There's a lot of like podcast companies starting up and they have like the same type of group of people that were working at Weekend Edition when I started as an intern there. And right. I think that's a, a real like problem, but I don't want to say that to say like, I don't like as though I'm not part of this problem. So I'm just saying like, to me, it's not just like a question of like, can I craft my story in a way that somehow like maybe one other person who didn't come from the particular set of, of colleges that I went to. I didn't go to a bunch of colleges, but you know, I went to Oberlin, it's like similar to a bunch of other ones. You know, like, I, it's not, I think, a question of craft of story only. I think it has a lot to do with like who your editor is and who listened to the story. And uh, I, I think that's like a very, very urgent need. And that's what I have to say about that. All right, but uh, so are we, um, th that's, that makes sense. Okay. It's cool, but let's just say we are in a state of emergency. Uh -huh. Let's just say that a, a, a hyper-populist campaign that at least had all the body language of fascism just mm -hmm. gave us a president of the United States who, if he carries out his campaign promises, uh, will take us very much on a fascist path. Should we be sitting here talking about hiring? I don't know, what you asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like there's a lot to talk Who about. Who do you think you are, Zoe? <laughs> like, what? There's a lot to talk about right so, now. Okay, you know? so let, let's move back to, to the, the original premise then. Okay. That, you know, there's the chronic problem that helped get us to the state of the, the media ecology we're in now, and then the immediate problem that Donald Trump is going to be the president, and we have stories to tell for at least the next four years. Is it a state of emergency? Should we be clarion callers of, of warning, knowing that we'll be dismissed? Is that our responsibility? Or is it something different? You know, I, I think, for example, um, the, the fact that we know that not far from here, actually, um, in this, not, not too far from here, um, there were raids. Um, immigration raids, not by a deportation force, but that they were happening right here in Chicago three years ago. When you know, I'm a professor here six months out of the year. I live in New York. I'm Mexican. I never say no to work. So when they offered me a job, I'm like, yes. Um, that was a joke. Um, so, so that notion of like the deportation, for, that is for reals. So the emergency that you're talking about, Bob, in many communities, and we're covering that this week on Latino USA, it is for real. And so as a journalist, we, 
who can tell those stories have got to tap into that very real fear, right, of people. But when I put on my, you know, democracy junkie hat and, you know, I became an American citizen by choice hat, the question that I actually put back is, as I say in Spanish, ellos lo están viviendo en carne propia. The fear that they're living is in their, on their skin. They're feeling it. But what does it mean for the rest of us that we know that this is, gonna, that this is happening now? What does it mean for the rest of us? Um, and, and how do we pose that question? Because I actually, in, in speaking with many Trump supporters, um, Latino and not, um, of, of, of every race, Native American, African American, Latino, white. Um, I don't really believe that they are racist at their core. No, I don't believe that. So that that possibility of having dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. As you say, yeah. being. I mean, people get really freaked out when they're just like, "What do you mean, Maria? You want to sit down with the guy who wrote the you know most extreme anti-abortion law ever in history for South Dakota?" I'm like, because that's my job. How do you not feel like you want to punch him in the face? And I'm like, because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what that is what we that is our civic duty yeah. as journalists. But I will tell you that because I do a show like Latino USA or In the Thick, you know, people will think that I have some kind of un-American agenda. And it's like, no, the reason why I care about telling these stories is because I'm an American citizen. Not because I was born in Mexico. Thank you. Not because I was born in Mexico, but because I became an American citizen. I want to talk about the state of emergency thing. Like, we have to, we have to be careful in the way that we frame the current environment that we, we enter into. We NPR. We journalists. Journalists. Journalism. This new reality may be a state of emergency for you, me, us, them, but some Americans and some people in this country live in a state of emergency every day. And so it is not just myopic to approach my work now in a constant state of fear, but it is inconsiderate and condescending to other people's lived experience. And so what I need to do now more than ever is get my fucking game face on and like be there for this audience that might have been going through shit for a long time. That's all. <laughs> I, I agree with what he said. I mean, I, yeah. You know, agreeing is death to panels, right? We're done. We're good. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's pretty early to have, like, a whole bunch of insight to share to a huge room of people, you know, after this reporting experience. It's been a very strange uh, experience to report on this election, um, especially when you kind of, like, found yourself headed in one direction. For me personally, I was really curious about the Republican Party and kind of like what was happening to it. I spent a lot of time thinking about that as, as well as other things. In fact, I was on stage at the Bell House in New York City talking about what, where the Republican Party was gonna do on election night. And that became like really irrelevant like 45 minutes after I said that. So I very recently had an experience like being on a panel talking to a bunch of random people who I didn't know and trying to give them some, some insight based on the reporting I had done 
that became like really not the question of the day, like a second later. And I, I just would like, you know, a little, a little patience and time to, to be as humble as possible and, and figure out what kind of reporting I'd like to do next, what kind of reporting you'd like to do next, you know what I mean? And, and not to dismiss, you know, and for people to have their time to have their, to go through their feelings if they're like a journalist that feels like suddenly they're in a state of emergency. Like a lot of people don't relate to that feeling, but personally as a journalist, like I just have a little bit of whiplash and I'm just trying to figure that out. You know, I think that's okay, but I don't think it's a good idea to like preach then what to do while you're in the middle of that. That's what I was talking about. Not in, this really poses a lot of challenges challenges for us. And so, you know, yes, we have to do our work. We have to become better journalists. We have to have a national conversation about what that means. David Gergen going on CNN and basically saying, "Did the press enable Donald Trump?" Having that conversation. Um, but we also just have to be, right? We also have to be with this and not have the exact response. And a lot of us are, you know, going inwards, you know? I mean, I would totally love to hang out with you guys, but I feel like I gotta get home to my husband, you know? Uh, thank God, after 25 years of marriage, hello? All of you are like, I just turned 25, yeah. Uh, 25 years of marriage, yeah. Um, so, what I love about, about the team here, but in particular, is being able to approach, yes, with love. So when I speak to, you know, now approaching Donald Trump as a journalist, I was gonna be antagonistic at odds with any politician who was there. Yeah. Obama didn't give me the interview, Hillary didn't give me the yeah. interview, George W. didn't give me the interview, I'm not getting this one, so my relationship <laughs> always is gonna be one of antagonism with, with the power, the political power. But with the people, we absolutely have to try to attempt to understand. And let me tell you, as a Mexican woman, you know, who has Mexican-Americans uh, around me, and I think even one in my family, um, I need to understand that deeply. So at Latino USA, we're doing a lot of thinking about that. What is that? And it's not like we weren't. We were always there. We put them on the air over a year and a half ago, right? We put them on the air. Um, but we, as a show, are thinking, okay. But at the same time, we can't change who we are, right? We just have to be with an open heart. Mm -hmm. uh, on that subject of being who we are, uh, my name is Bob, and I'm part of the problem. As some of you may know, I spent most of the last eight or nine months uh, crusading, uh, agitating, uh, belittling my colleagues who continued to cover the Trump as part of just a horse race, and by my lights, normalizing him, making him just seem like yet the latest political candidate, maybe more extreme than others, but you know, we're going to treat him like another candidate, and by the way, he's seeing these outrageous things, so he's getting a billion dollars worth of, of free publicity. And I said, no, 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 we were, we're doing this all wrong. We should, this is a 200-year storm, and it's coming our way, and we should cover it like that. And, you know, by, after the primaries and during the general election, not because I had anything to do with it, but just because the press 
writ large sort of began to realize what was going on. They, they really were aggressive. David Fahrenthold's best work came after the primaries. Sure. The New York Times opinion editors hammering him every day, uh, opinion writers and editorials every day, some fantastic journalism. And, you know, it turns out, again, nobody who in that 50% that voted for him paid the slightest bit of attention and rather just simply believed even more that we are a monolith that's against their mainstream values. So the, my question for you is, and here I, want, here I want to know what you think, and maybe a show of hands. Do you think it is our job in this state of emergency to aggressively point out all that is fascistic and dangerous and un-American? or to get our game faces on and just do what we've done all along and talk to people and hope it sort of seeps into the greater You can do both. What? I was going to say, can we both. can do that both. Is a, that we is gotta a false premise. Absolutely. We can do we both. Never, we never Absolutely. not once did I not call out BS from any candidate during the course of this campaign. True, true. And you true. can do that. You can do that and still be open-hearted and compassionate. Yeah. And still, and but also How still. How did that be, work out still, for you? Well, wait, but we also have to. Well, be, it's not Sam's job to figure out who, like, to make the next president. Like, that's not Sam's. I, I mean, I just feel like everybody is is doing the work that they're doing. Like, I I love listening to to on the media. Bob and Brooke are some of the the most deepest steeped in how media has worked today and before and like what is really going on in an interview when Jake Tapper is saying the same thing over and over again like I need that insight and work I don't discount some work because the other work is different you know what I mean like I appreciate the work that you did the last eight months I listen on the media every week you know along with the Federalist Radio Hour where Ben Dominich is you know trying to forge a new conservative movement you know like I think that that work is very important I certainly don't think Sam after the like daily reporting as well as like podcast insight he was doing should then have to look at himself and be like well I guess I screwed up like this is America we live in America we're covering America you know we're not deciding what America is that's not, I don't, thank you. But. But, but you guys, I mean, do we, I think Bob's question is um, what we can do both, but the question of addressing, you know, fascism, it's a very, right. it's a, what? That we are using this. But at the same time, you know, we cannot, we cannot have blinders on, you guys. I mean, we've, the world has been through this before. So maybe, okay. He did, just, he did just say he's going to keep certain parts of Obamacare, okay. And I don't think it's true, but you know, maybe he's gonna surprise us. I actually had that image this morning. I was like, wow, maybe four years from now it's gonna be like, dude, he did another one of these and he's actually like, you know, so, and I'm like, what did that, what does that even look like? I don't know, but, but let's just say that doesn't work out. The question of our role and responsibility is really important. Um, you know, are we, are we just saying, oh, look, there's a fire there, or are we saying, and the fire's getting closer to where you are in your neighborhood, you may need to get out. 
please look out your window and determine. You know. And so again, some of these core questions of who we are and what our role is have to be talked about. Yeah, um, but, sorry, I, no, I don't want to interrupt. I just like I think that also certainly a big a big part of of what we do is is examine the structure so it's like why did the fire start what was happening before like how come we're in a neighborhood where there's so many fires how come the fire department you know is made a decision not to fight fires in abandoned homes like what happened there you know like i think it's very important to think about the structure and um you know like obviously if you listen to to the work of of um hannah and nicole on on this american life like i think they've done some of the best uh, in terms of radio storytelling of like how a structure works that is a deeply American structure. And, and I, I just think that reporting is, it, a lot of times like that's the goal. I, certainly at Planet Money, it, it kind of was. It was like the economy's doing what over here? Like what's the structure that made the economy do that thing? And I, I think that like, I did have an experience this year where I was trying to understand how to put those two things together but I just think it's like really super hard. Like you have to do a lot of stories before you can do that in a way that's like, I don't know, like I was in uh, Minnesota and talking with people about how they felt about, about refugees in their community and they were not into it. And um, I was trying to kind of figure out, well, why aren't you into it? But like, not like, why are you racist? But like, is there, what's the structure at play here that made that be the thing that was your most important thing? Is there, is, there a, is there something else happening here and I'm not looking at it? So then I was able to just kind of do, do a bit of reporting on, on like the specific structure of anti-refugee resettlement that exists as like a real phenomenon and like, you know, I should have spent more time on where the money for that structure came from. You know, like I, that's what I mean, I guess, when I'm thinking about Farenthold and the the chari charitable giving, like maybe people thought like, well, he had two months where he was saying that about Trump's charitable giving. Well, he's gonna keep working on that story. That's an important story and it's just like taking longer and like we, that means we have to work harder, I suppose. I also think though, like going back to your thing about like questions about the fire, mm -hmm. who started the fire? Why did fire start here? What kind of wood was the house made of? Whatever. like. No one journalist and no one institution can ask all the right questions. So I think like the challenge is to figure out what can I do best? What is my lane in solving the fire story, explaining the fire story, and how can I rely on other news outlets to inform that work? I think what I had to figure out this year was that I was never going to be able to cover demographics and numbers in the way that my colleagues Domenico and Osmo were. I wasn't gonna be able to do that. But they got that, right? And they were never gonna be able to get folks to open up out in the world like I was able to do sometimes, so they let me do that. Mm -hmm. And I think finding your lane, staying in there, and understanding how other people's work can complement that, one, is key, and knowing that you can't do everything well. And two, I think it means that like we have to rely on other newsrooms to do part of this work as well. Like, NPR never had the size of a political reporting team that some of the major newspapers had. So we could never tackle some of the enterprise stories that they did. But when they did it, we were glad for it. And I'm a subscriber to the news outlets that inform what I'm doing. And it's kind of just like knowing that we're all kind of doing this stuff together. So I don't expect any one journalist or one outlet to get all of it right because they're one piece of this larger thing, hopefully. It could be actually a fascinating moment in the sense of 
um, of an antagonistic, a truly antagonistic relationship between the power structure and you know the mainstream media again. I mean, just watching what the New York Times is going to do, is and the Post, you know, it's going to be really fascinating, and um, and there is that kind of, um, you know, I mean, look at the movie that won the best picture of the year. It was about American journalism, and so in that sense, we have our marching orders. We absolutely have our marching orders. I don't mean to dismiss this question of fascism that you're bringing up. Um, it just, it always feels like it, it wraps too many assumptions in, like, I, I don't know, like, I just, I think it's like important to, to sort of read the history of fascism in, in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and, and think about what's happening here in America, but I don't think that then you say like, okay, so here's my template and like here it is. Like, I, I think that we are, I worry about this, I worry about using some words that apply to a different time and a different moment for this thing that's happening here. And I'm not saying that they're not accurate or helpful. I'm saying that like I feel some concern about that because I, I don't want us to miss the specifics and miss key questions that we should be asking. That's well, there's some risk, to right, that. to your, to your um reputation by, in, by being on the wrong side of Godwin's law. And if you make historical comparisons, uh, you're at the risk of you know, a lot of people rolling their eyes. But there's also the possibility that this is no time to be calm and to be concerned about maybe specious comparisons. It might be time, and this is the whole premise of today's conversation, it might be time for everybody not to be calm, including us. And th this is the question we have to face. Do we, are, are, are we a fire brigade? Or are, uh, you know, I hate to say st stenographers because that's pejorative, but uh, do, do we just continue to operate the way we have? And if we're a fire brigade, we, we, you know, we know that half of America is just going to turn us away at the door when we show up with our, with our buckets of water. Um, it's a tough one. Does it, are we asking the right questions? And if we're not asking the right questions, I would like to know Bob, from don't you, don't you what, think what that, the right question is. Don't you think that um, if, again, if we have a, a president-elect who is so antagonistic to the media, to journalists, to journalism, then aren't we on fire? Well, we uh, are. And in fact, are. not only is he antagonistic, he is portraying us as one of the others. Of the instigators, One too. of the enemies of, yeah. of uh, the republic. And, you know, it's, it's, isn't it kind of hard to get your game face on when, uh, when you go to report a story and somebody thinks that a fifth column but, has walked in? But you can, you yeah. know what, though? But, like, we've got to understand, that, don't let... You do understand that, like, Donald Trump is calling up the Times and the Post all the goddamn time, right? I mean, so, like, we have to understand holistically, like, what's happening. <laughs> and so... There might be a need to find a different way in, but there's a way in. Every other day, I'm reading a story from Maggie Haberman at the Times about the seven or eight or nine Trump staffers that leaked a lot of stuff today, right? Who are her sources? I want to know. She's awesome. But, like, <laughs> you can't get in that way. You go around that way. And I don't have to yell to find a new way. I don't have to yell to have a fire in my belly. I don't have to scream to have a sense of urgency. I think we mistake loudness for effectiveness sometimes, or paranoia 
for urgency or the harshest words and descriptions of things for, for effectiveness. Maybe that's not it. I don't think it's it. Like, one of the things that helped our, our show get such a, a large audience is that none of us were yelling at each other. And that allowed liberals and conservatives and this one and that one to say, I can feel like I'm a part of this conversation. Also, just like to speak to the room, which I think is like a lot of aspiring documentarians, like I, I do think that there's a lot of good work that's done as the like arson investigator, not to overdo the media, but like, I mean the media, the metaphor. Uh, like I do think that that's very valuable and, and certainly at This American Life, I think we think about that a lot because we have the privilege of not having to rush. So I think they're like, that work feels like incredibly important to me, the way that you figure out the specifics of what led to this particular thing. And I think that a lot of people here uh, are interested in that work. And I think that's like super important work. And I agree kind of both with with, with Bob and Sam on this one, like, be motivated, you know, like, just take whatever motivation you have, like, into that, and you can be as urgent, you know, or not as you, as you wanna be in that, but, like, certainly once you're in the field, you have to be, like, humble so you can figure out what's actually happening. So don't yell at the person that you're, like, going to figure out where the fire started, you know, but have, you know, have whatever motivation you want. But don't, don't not go. Uh, I just got to say, uh, I don't even agree with Bob. Because my impulse, my impulse, which is to scream and yell, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. I also understand undercuts my very legitimacy as a journalist. So, you know, it, I, yeah, it's like the last year in Chinatown. What, 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 my what daughter, I, my sister, my daughter, know, my sister. Maybe it's a thing of experience. Warn them. No, not. but maybe it's a thing of experience because I walk through the world every day as a six-foot-tall black guy with no hair on his head and a beard, and I can't walk in every fucking room and yell. I don't get to do it. And I have had to build a life for myself where the only way that I get through trying to be goddamn charming, right? And like trying to talk to people and like it's effective. Right. And I well, don't maybe, like- Maybe I, I should be, and maybe a lot of us should be using our white privilege to do the yelling that you don't get to do. No! No, dude. No! No! no. Hold on a no. second. No, actually hold on a second. No. Because I, so, so yes and no. Like again, what we love about Sam is that the heart is open, right? The heart is open. You know, what would Edward R. Murrow say to us? Um, what would he say to us first? And second of all, I totally get, like, if I start screaming, oh, you know what they're saying. Uh-huh. You're angry. You angry little five-foot Mexican And by the way, they are, you know, that, like, that stuff is for reals. Actually, on Facebook and stuff like that, not, like, the broader. But... So, so we can't, we actually can't do the yelling, but at the same time, to the point, there is extraordinary privilege in this room. There is. Y'all need to look at yourselves, okay? You need to look at yourselves. And we, not to take it off, you know, but we are journalists, right? So we have work to do, okay? 
we have work to do. So it's both. We need that heart. I mean, somebody, um, actually it was Rachel Maddow who asked Elizabeth Warren, so are people now going to start actually protecting their neighbors? And to Sam's point, these are people who have been approached you know, for deportation or for whatever for a long time, but now, you know, that fear has been there, but now it's escalating. But the question, will people come out and take care of their neighbors? Let them hide in their homes and not let immigration agents in? I don't know. So, uh, again, we're going to have to figure it out, but, but I, I'm, I'm more on the side Can of... Can you fucking believe that we're sitting here talking about whether people yes, will yes. let their neighbors hide yes. in their homes? Yes, we have to see that because that is real. People, oyeme, oyeme, that is real. Okay, you guys, we all need to understand that, and you do not need to go far. Go to Pilsen. You're going to go and hang out and eat food there. Oyeme, habla con la gente, and ask them how they're feeling, because that is real. Dudes, and you know what? When I was six years old growing up in High Park, right here in Chicago, that fear was real for me, because the guy was George Wallace, and my best friend was Jewish, and we were like, what basement are we going to hide in? So I experienced that a billion years ago, but it is real. So there is, Bob, an emergency. And there is the role of all of us, not as journalists only, but as Americans, to be vigilant, and yet at the same time to be able to talk to each other. All right, so as you have probably by now divined, this is not a panel that, in, that, is, that was ever destined to come up with any answers. It is more of a marriage <laughs> encounter, right? And we don't want to have it alone. So we're, we have microphones in the audience, and we want to hear your questions, your fears, your thoughts. And of course, uh, don't be stinting on your praise. Or opinions. Um, my name is Eve Epstein. I work for Marketplace. But I got my start as a reporter working in Charleston, West Virginia, at a small newspaper. Um, when it was a blue state, and a state that was represented by unions, and when there were coal mining jobs. And they aren't there anymore, and the newspaper's hanging on. I want to suggest and ask that the way we build trust and build our audience is through our local stations and the local reporters and the local work that you're doing. Not in any way to take away from what you're doing in the limelight and in the spotlight, which is heroic. But we need to figure out to, a way to work together and to build that audience that you're talking about through all the people here who, frankly, when the budget cuts start coming, are going to see their newsrooms cut more than anybody else and their resources cut more than anybody else. So that's my question and the problem that I pose to you. You've just articulated Bill Simmering's vision for right. NPR going back, whatever it is, 30 Bill years. Bill Simmering, yes! Yeah. <laughs> And it, that, that no, vision like kind of went away, right? Because it stopped, it did not become the, uh, the aggregation of voices from all over the country and public radio stations all over the country. It became a network and it was fed and it was centralized and it came from Washington and New York and then out to the hinterlands. Is that, is that a reasonable way to approach, let's just say the public radio portion of our uh, audience? Can I just say really quickly, yes, but at the same time, Again, putting the critical eye on ourselves, we need to look at who is going to be making the decisions about who they're hiring in those local newsrooms. And we need to work really hard at making sure that those local newsrooms are also deeply diverse because of the importance of that reporting. 
Good morning. Uh, my name is LaToya. I work at Youth Radio in Oakland. And uh, thank you. Uh, what I've been hearing on this panel and a lot of journalists talking about is, uh, one, the state of emergency, um, and that we as journalists didn't tell the right stories or we aren't heard well. And I think what I would say is, um, I'm just going to be super frank as a black woman, my state of emergency has existed for a very long time. <laughs> so it's not, this is, I don't even know if I would call it a state of emergency so much as state of life. Um, that has been elevated to um, a larger platform, for which in some ways I'm grateful to Donald Trump because I don't know if people would have listened to me before. Um, so in that way, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but I think what I would say is that uh, I'm not actually concerned about our voices being heard. I'm concerned about the voices of some Americans not being heard by other Americans um, across the divide. And I think I want to see journalists thinking about how to get um, America talking to each other rather than listening to us. Nice. Thank you, Latoya. If I could just ask you to stop being so young because it just pisses me off. It's better than the alternative. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> no, seriously, guys, we've got to be grateful also. Move with gratitude. Move with gratitude. You ha we have so much to be grateful for, and it is a, a good place for us as journalists and as storytellers to move in the world with gratitude. Yes. I can't see anything out there. Yeah, I'm just seeing see. bright lights, so. Ahoy there. <laughs> My name is Daniela Cheslow, and I just got back from nine years of political reporting, mainly in Israel, but also Middle East and Europe. Um, but I was listening a lot uh, to Zoe Chase's reporting, and I was wondering about how your listeners are, like, among your listeners, are your conservative subjects listening back to the way that you portray them? Oh, um, and are the people in the stories listening to the stories? Yeah, and like, do they bring along 10 friends? You know, like, do you find that getting deep into Republican country broadens the This American Life listener base? Like, how, because I, I think a lot about this thing of like, if we're being called the lying press, if half the country is ignoring us, so what does it matter? Who's listening? Um... I don't know who's listening to This American Life, really. Uh, I don't know. But I will just say that in the stories that I've been doing, I always make sure the subjects hear the stories. Uh, I tell them exactly what's going to be in the stories before they air uh, so that they're prepared. And I prepare them for the, the social media onslaught that may happen against them. This was something I was extremely worried about with one of my subjects this year. Uh, he, his name was Alex, he's 17 years old, black gay guy supporting Donald Trump, and he just, just pissed off everybody, and he's so vulnerable, only 17, and I just did not wanna see people weigh in on Alex. Like, I just, and I, I find that very frustrating. I know that's not quite what you were asking. You know, I just really don't know, like, I want, a lot of people to listen to the work that they, I don't know what I want, who's listening. I want a lot of people to listen, um, but 
I, I think it's a little bit challenging with this Twitter situation <laughs> because I just feel like you spend all this time with people and, and you get them to talk to you and explain things and they're just really vulnerable and they're not like professionals. You know, like I didn't call, I don't call back the congressman that's in my story to tell him what's in it and to prepare for Twitter. Like I don't, I'm not worried about him, but somebody who's never done an interview before and then all these random people that weigh in on it, like that's very difficult. Uh, that's been very difficult terrain for me to navigate as a journalist because I can promise them that I'm gonna do my best to be like so representing what they're saying fairly, but I can't promise them that the audience not only isn't gonna like listen carefully and evaluate them with great consideration and love, but like also that they'll say that to them. And my, that kid, that 17 year old, I mean, he just got so much blowback and it was hard to watch that. And I think that is a challenge that we face at this moment. Sorry, that's not exactly the answer to your question. Still interesting, thanks. <laughs> Hi, my name is Stina Sieg. Um, I work at KJZZ in Phoenix. So we're kind of on the front lines of how divided everyone is. And um, on the night of the election, I was at the hotel that the, all the Republicans were camped out in watching all the results. And so it was very, they, everyone was very excited. And one woman walked up to our table and basically said, why are you guys so biased? Why is, I mean, She's a casual listener, so she didn't really know the difference between like our station and NPR, but she was asking about the whole picture, and I tried to give an answer that was really fair, but I wish I could do it again, and do you guys have an answer for, this is gonna happen over and over again, you know, like, what do we say when people ask that question, even though I don't feel that the bias is there, I want to give her a real answer and also hear her. I asked him a question back. I'm usually like, okay, thank you for this feedback. What did you hear that you think sounded biased? Lots of times they'll say, well, there was this thing I read in the New York Times. I'm like, I'm not the New York Times. Uh, but sometimes they'll tell me why, and they'll tell me what. And then I listen and take them back to my newsroom. But I never try to have an answer to that question that is like, you're wrong. Because like, you, whether they're right or wrong, they feel that way, and it needs to be addressed. So I, I always try to say, okay, what was it? Let's talk about it. Because I, I mean, like, I want to know. Yeah. But I will tell you that in another Arizona newsroom, a news director told me that the, he was getting calls from his listeners saying, why are you treating Donald Trump so fairly? We get this too. So, so I think, again, in terms of public media, there is, you know, that question. For sure. I have a, an answer to the bias question. It's probably, it's probably more satisfying to me than it is to anybody whom I, to whom I give it. But it is that uh, <laughs> making a judgment, an informed judgment based on facts, objective facts, is, uh, is analysis, it's judgment. It, if it's preordained and doctrinaire and uh, inevitable, absent any in a vacuum of facts, well then that, that is bias, that's, that's uh, pol polemic. But when journalists are paid to gather facts and evaluate them and present them in a way that they deserve to be presented, that, that's just not bias, it's, it's something else. And it, it's called journalism. Uh, and then they asked me about that story in the New York Times. So, you know, you can't win for losing. 
Next. Yes. Hey, guys. Um, I'm Ryan Kyloth. I, I live in Louisiana and report at a member station there in the heart of Trump country. Uh, my, my county, my parish, is blue, but the five surrounding it are bright, bright, deep, deep red. And that's our broadcast radius. That's our signal. Um, what I'm starting to wonder and realize is that it doesn't matter what story I tell. It doesn't matter if I got the story right. It doesn't matter if I got the story wrong. Because the people I most want to inform are not tuning into NPR. And my question that I'm starting to grapple with is like, do I need to quit and go work at like the commercial AM station in town? Because that's what my neighbors listen to. They don't listen to NPR. Yes. What, what's the goal? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Is this job counseling? Like, what's the salary rate? I don't want to, but what I'm grappling with is do I need to? No, I mean, well, I think what we tried to do is say we're, we're going to be on all of the platforms that we can. Podcasting right now is like the whitest medium. Terrestrial radio is a little less white. The internet is even less white and younger. Snapchat even more so. I, Twitter too, so I tried to be like in all of those spaces. Like that's the first step I think. Like your awesome podcast lives in a, an awesome podcast bubble, right? And so as journalists, how can we be in all the spaces we can be and like sneak around and find those people everywhere? Um, but yeah, I mean like there is, I don't have an answer to your question, but like there is, there is good work to be done in newsrooms throughout the country that are private and public. And yeah, sometimes there is a little bit of snobbery around public media and that we're the only sometimes? ones doing the Lord's work, right? Sometimes? Yeah, but like I don't, I don't begrudge my colleagues in the fight that are in corporate media. I don't, like, that is not a bad thing. Like, the, you can tell the truth wherever you are. And I'm never gonna tell someone to turn down a good job that is not in our space or my space. I worked for eight years at CNN, so I, I know it. We should so, be everywhere. And so it comes back again to the same question, is, is, our core, is our duty to serve our core audience with kind of more of what they expect and which not coincidentally tends to validate their pre-existing worldviews, or do we do whatever we can to expand our audience to the people who refuse to listen to us, and can we do that without pandering and betraying our journalistic duty? What you know, I, I, I don't know that this question is answerable, but it, it, seems to be, uh, it seems to be pretty key. Are you asking us? Yeah, you said it's unanswerable, so. I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna answer it. I don't wanna like repeat what I said before, but I just think that like the people that are asking the question, there's just like not enough different people in the room asking the question. So the solution is not gonna necessarily come out of the room that created the polarized media landscape. So I find myself in a very kind of like trying to figure this out mode at the moment. And I, I certainly don't have the feeling that like, oh, the problem is not enough people are listening to NPR. Like, <laughs> but, you know, the I'm other not way, that, that's not where I'm at. So I just, uh, yeah, I'm in a, a moment of 
trying to figure this out type thing. But the other way to look at it is, you know, Bob, you're talking about that, I think you're talking about that sector of white America that maybe feels like they're not included. But when I talk about growing the audience, I'm thinking about the fact that on, mm, okay, let's see, I'm not gonna, all right. But on certain very big public radio stations, some of them very close to where we are right now, the diversity listenership to those public radio stations is so incredibly low that, that we should all have pena ajena, shame, feel shame, because, so there is work to be done and that's part of our job, right? Because when I look at the future of public, public media, so maybe not the podcast Landia, but pub public media, um, you know, if there is not a diverse listenership by demographics, we need to be focusing also on that diver, the, whatever that word is, demographic too, right? So it's, it's multiple ways in which we have to grow our audience. I mean, the critique is that public radio is too white, too white. So, yeah, so we're, we we're have to own that too. In, in many yeah. ways, we're a punchline, you know, along with quinoa, NPR in quinoa. Wellesley, yes. you know, it's uh, uh, shit yeah, white people like, right? That's a thing. Yeah, well, well, there's work to be done, sweetie. I've been trying to, I mean, I've been doing that for 30 years. 30 years, you know? So, um, yeah, there is work to be done. And as I said, and you have work to be done. You have work to do here. If you don't go out immediately and get T-shirts that say, there's work to be done, sweetie, you have disappointed me a great deal. I like that. Es mucho amor. Yeah. I, I, I would also urge, though, like, uh, we're not as white as we think we are. I mean, I walk into a newsroom every goddamn day. My editor's a black woman. Her boss is a woman. The woman that sits behind me wears a hijab. Like, I mean, like, this, we need to also give ourselves credit for, like, trying to do this. No, but the other half of the radio machine. I mean, that's what we're discussing now, not what's going on in no, the No, but also yeah. I think, like, it's, it, it both goes, like, right. they go hand in hand. When people hear diverse voices, the audience becomes more diverse. Exactly. There's been so many, we tried this thing in NPR One when it was just starting. What's that? Okay, oh, go okay. ahead. Oh, sorry, right, we'll be quiet. Yeah, stop paneling, panel. I know. Hi, was... thanks for taking my call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Andy McDaniel. I'm head of content at WAMU in Washington, D.C., uh, which gives me a pretty significant responsibility right now as the person who is sort of the gatekeeper of the sound of the NPR station that, well, that Sam Sanders listens to. That I listen to. to every morning. Thank you for um, it. And uh, first of all, Zoe, I gr agree with you completely. We're in this sort of existential moment right now that I think we need to lean into and let happen. I don't think we know what all of this means yet, and I think we should know that we don't know yet. But there are two things I really want to implore others here to be thinking about, in addition to, I'd love a reaction from the panelists. One is, it makes, it makes sense to me that we have the audience that we do. Because the one thing in all of the chaos of the last few days for me um, that has brought some clarity is listening to my own station like a deplorable. Listen to NPR like a deplorable. What do we sound like? What does car talk sound like? 
What are our stories from around the world sound like where we're talking about an exotic fruit and the origins of an exotic fruit? If you live in a small town in Iowa and you voted for President Obama eight years ago and again four years later because he was gonna change things and you still got the same shitty job and, and it doesn't make sense for you to work because then you have to pay for daycare and it barely neutralizes itself. What does NPR sound like to you? And notice that. I'm just saying right now, notice that. And the second thing I'd ask is think about where you can be in this ecosystem where you can be influential. And we're talking about hiring and we're talking about some other things. I'm in a role where I'm not just controlling the sound of a particular radio piece. I am in charge of hiring. I agree there's a hiring problem and I'm working actively on it. There is a way to hire more diverse people in a from a class perspective, from a race perspective and gender. And the only way you do that is if you get in a position where you actually are in charge of that. And I'll tell you, it's a much more stressful job than when I was editing audio. I really miss that. But I'm making a much bigger difference. And I need more of you to be doing that. So please, listen like deplorables, if only for a few minutes, and notice and have it affect your work. Listen to your own podcast like a deplorable. And think about Mama, becoming a Mama, I have to stop you, my love. My love, what is your name? Andy. Andy, and you know, I know your boss and I love WAMU. Mama, please, do not use that word anymore, mamita. Please. I... That's all. Bless you for saying that, and I, and I hope that's not taken the wrong way. What I mean is, I had a... I, I know, but that's the problem, is that when we use those words, like the illegals, or the, and then, so we have to really, really think about the words. By the way, the name of this panel is Mudslinging, right? I think mudslide. 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 You all know that we have to understand that the term mud now has a very different, right? Many of us in this room are considered mud people, so so words are going to be so with all my love. But I am right now by people who endorsed the president-elect. I think all of us are considered mud people, right? If you're not. Aryan. And actually, at the first at the top of the list of the mud people, you know who they are. Who is it? Oh my gosh, it's the Jewish people. They're the number one hated. So down here, African American, Mexican, etc. As Chris Rock says, that train's never late. Yeah. But I want to speak to the sentiment of the comment there. And I think what you're getting at is a totally valid point. It's to listen with empathy and to listen as if, and to listen and to report in a way that you don't think you're better than anybody else. And I think so much of what you can hear sometimes in our coverage is that we've talked to people in the real world or talked about the story in a way that we think that we're better than them. And that mindset can infect your coverage in a way that before you even know the words you're saying, that is just out there. And people hear that and they feel that and they know that. Yeah, sometimes the condescension is just palpable. Yeah, and, and so like, for me, the challenge is to understand whoever I talk to and whoever my audience is, I have to assume and believe that whether we agree or disagree, some of the basic emotions that we share are like universal and compatible. And if they are mad about something or angry about something or happy about something, even if it's not the same experience for me, I can understand 
what anger and happiness and confusion and misery and, and despair fear. is. And fear. And fear. And I can say, you know what, we can relate along at least these emotional lines. And, 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 and like, I can't say that I'm better than them because I feel the same way sometimes about different things. But the, this empathy and just like, you're not better than them. And like, we have to approach our storytelling like that. And, and one further thought, if I could just say that, um, you know, a lot of us here are from the coasts and we think of, um, think of the working class and, uh, as being you know, from somewhere in the flyover country, some indistinct place. Uh, middle America it, uh, actually turns out not necessarily to be in the middle of America. WAMU serves Manassas, Virginia, and Western Maryland, and Kensington, which is, I don't know, about six miles from its towers. The, the people who are uh, the people who are not our listeners are in our listener area. They're within our signal. You don't have to go to Iowa to not be able to reach them. Um, next question, please. Hi, I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. I'm an independent producer with a team called Outer Voices. And most of my work, well, all of my work is overseas, um, which I love. But one thing that I've learned by being in, working in some pretty sketchy places is that we're um, extremely safe. And what I saw in the coverage of this last election is that that safety that we are able for the next couple of months to gloriously um, take for granted, most likely anyway, um, may not be there for us for a very long time. And so I just wanted to bring up another point to see if uh, it was time to talk about journalist safety here in the U.S. I just want to say, like, a lot of people don't feel safe. You just said we. A lot of people don't feel safe here anyway. In terms of journalist safety, what to do? Like as though we're in a war zone? Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, sorry. No, as, as we're going to be stabbed to death in the foyer of our uh, apartment buildings, like happens in Moscow, for okay. example. Well, not necessarily, but I do think that journalists get arrested all over the world and um, detained all over the world. And here, we've seen during the election, journalists getting beat up and, you know, ostracized from rallies. And I don't know how this is going to go, but I do think that it might be time to raise that point, especially when we're talking about reaching over our comfort zones, you know, out into areas and neighborhoods we're not usually finding yeah. ourselves. Just like the hour and the we is a little tricky here, I think, just to think about maybe just what your comfort zone is and who's other and who's not, just consider I, that first also, of all. Yeah. Go ahead. I'd also say though that like you'd be surprised where some of those areas of like danger exist. I think there was this kind of expectation. People would tweet at me and be like, oh my God, you're at a Trump rally. Do you feel safe? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. Like every Trump rally I went to, and I went to a lot, um, even the people that were yelling, CNN sucks and F the media. As soon as I said, hey, you want to talk? They're like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> And the one place where I got like harassed and was scared for a colleague's physical safety 
was in California, in Santa Monica, at the Bernie Sanders victory party that night he lost. And so when we think about safety, we have to understand that sometimes the threats don't come where we expect them to come from, and that kind of awareness is vital. Like if you're talking about state-sponsored targeting of journalists, I think that sounds like a really big problem that we are gonna have to deal with, but like, we don't know what that looks like right now. We don't the know fact what that, looks that we're like having now. this conversation, though, does point up yet again that we are facing risks as a society. And that, the fact that we're thinking about journalists under attack j just tells us that there are a lot of people under attack. And this gets back to the whole state of emergency, emergency thing. You know, from a certain perspective, the attacks, the harassment uh, against women, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians over the past four days, isolated though they may be, you know, in the aggregate, become look an awful lot like Kristallnacht. We have to keep our eyes open. Things are not the same. I will say though, uh, Sam, in fairness to the people who were screaming about CNN sucks, CNN does suck. <laughs> You know, it, wait, can I, I, I know say, a lot of good people that work there, and I don't think that that's like helpful to the industry right now, because I need them to do a good job. I do, and, I they're, need, and they're I need, trying to good. I mean, I yeah, have friends like, who still work there. And I need, they're trying. To, I need them to do it right, but they also so have I'm to take gonna, responsibility. Yeah, but I'm not going to like make them a joke. So right. can I just say right something? Now. And please don't. There's too many people watching CNN. Yes, you can't write CNN off. Right. So please don't tweet this out. Actually, I'm asking you a favor, I know. Well, now they're gonna tweet it out. No, you won't, because you know what? My husband's Dominican and he will come after you. No. Um, because actually, no, please don't. But, um, which actually goes to your point, because I'm actually having to say, because this is a little weird, right? Because, oh, what day is it? So a week ago, I was on MSNBC and Omarosa was on, and Omarosa and I kind of had a moment, and, um, uh, yeah, so and so Trump's how right. often have I said that? <laughs> I know. So this is the part that's don't tweet up because my husband, who is from the Dominican Republic, a country that was invaded by the United States in 1965, um, and who has experienced again the fear, like for reals, in terms of lack of democracy in his own country, he's very worried for me. He told me today because he's the one who goes in and he's deleting all the hate from my Facebook because, you know, he wants to shield me from that. But he, he's actually, like, worried. So it's both things. I'm like, no, right. papito, tranquilo, no va a pasar nada, you know, like. And then I'm like, this is the. So I don't know, but I think you are right, Bob. We need to have our eyes. We're back on the record now. We need to have our eyes open. We need to have our eyes open. I mean, Omarosa said she had a, an enemies list. Do we have any, one more question from the floor? We're gonna wrap, okay. okay. Great. I wanna thank uh, the panel, Sam Sanders, Maria Inahosa, Zoe Chase, you are phenomenal. Thank you, Bob. I wanna thank Third Coast for the, for the platform, and I wanna apologize for raising a lot of questions and answering zero of them. Uh, and, and I wanna thank you for, for being such a thoughtful and generous audience. Have a, have a great Third Coast. Thank you.